Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Rowe, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. November 21. On this date in history, in the year 1934, Ella Fitzgerald wins Amateur Night at Harlem's Apollo Theater. On the evening of November 21, 1934, a young and gangly would-be dancer took to the stage of Harlem's Apollo Theater to participate in a harrowing tradition known as Amateur Night. Finding herself on stage as a result of pure chance after her name was drawn out of a hat, the aspiring dancer spontaneously decided to turn singer instead, a change of heart that would prove significant not only for herself personally, but also for the future course of American popular music. The performer in question was teenaged Ella Fitzgerald, whose decision to sing rather than dance on this day in 1934 set her on a course toward becoming a musical legend. It also led her to victory on Amateur Night at the Apollo, a weekly event that was then just a little more than a year old but still thrives today. Born in 1917 in Newport News, Virginia, and orphaned at the age of 15, Ella Fitzgerald was a high school dropout and a ward of New York State when she made her way to the Apollo that autumn night in 1934 with two of her girlfriends. It was a bet, she later recalled. We just put our names in. We never thought we'd get the call. But Ella did get the call, and as it happened, she came to the stage immediately after a talented and popular local dance duo. Afraid that she couldn't measure up to the dancing talents of the preceding act, Ella was petrified. I looked and I saw all those people and I said, oh my gosh, what am I going to do out here? She told National Public Radio decades later. Everybody started laughing and said, what's she gonna do? And I couldn't think of nothing else, so I tried to sing The Object of My Affection. By her own admission, Fitzgerald was blatantly imitating the singer who popularized that song, Connie Boswell of the Boswell Sisters, and the first few notes were a disaster. Rushing on stage to protect her from the jeers of the notoriously tough Apollo Theater crowd, however, was the famous amateur night master of ceremonies Ralph Cooper, who helped Ella gather her wits and try again. On her second attempt, she brought down the house. Within the year, Ella Fitzgerald had been discovered by Chick Webb, to whose band she was legally paroled by the state of New York while still shy of her 18th birthday. It was with Webb's band that she scored her career-making hit, A Tisket, A Tasket, in 1938. But it was as a solo performer that she would become a jazz legend in the late 1940s and early 1950s as a revolutionary innovator in vocal jazz. November 22. 
On this date in history, in the year 1986, Mike Tyson becomes the youngest heavyweight champ in history. 20-year-old Mike Tyson knocks out 33-year-old Trevor Burbick in just 5 minutes and 35 seconds to become the youngest title holder ever. I'm the youngest heavyweight boxing champion in history, Tyson told his manager after the fight, and I'm going to be the oldest. Tyson's bravado wasn't misplaced when he walked into the ring to face Burbick. He had won all 27 of the matches he'd fought, knocking out 26 of his opponents. He threw unbelievably hard punches. Pineapples, trainer Angelo Dundee called them. Ref Mills Lane agreed. Everything he's got has good night written all over it, he said. Burbick refused to be intimidated by the younger man's furious arm and decided unwisely it turned out to stand up to Tyson instead of boxing him. He didn't bob or weave or even throw punches. He just stood there, wanting to show the world that he could take whatever Tyson was dishing out. I was trying to prove to myself that I could take his best shot, Burbick said, but he punches pretty hard. Tyson had a plan, too. I wanted to throw every punch with bad intentions, he said after the fight. I was throwing, what can I say, hydrogen bombs. During the first round, Burbick had fought in such slow motion that he looked like he was underwater. Early in the second, Tyson walloped him to the mat with a powerful left hook. The older man bounced up, but Tyson thumped him again. Burbick froze. Then his legs buckled and fell. The ref began to count while the champ struggled to get up. He lifted himself off the mat twice, and twice his legs wobbled so much that he fell again. He finally made it up, but Lane stopped the fight anyway. Burbick was up, he said later, but to allow somebody to get hit in that condition, that's criminal. Tyson kept his title for nine more bouts until Buster Douglas beat him in 1990. After that, his life unraveled. He was sent to prison for three years for rape. Then, five fights into his comeback in 1997, he bit off part of Evander Holyfield's ear and was disqualified. He retired for good in 2005. Burbick didn't fare much better. He too spent time in prison for rape and was found dead of chop wounds to the head, according to the coroner's report, in a church courtyard in Jamaica in 2006. November 23. On this date in history, in the year 1959, the Birdman of Alcatraz is allowed a small taste of freedom. Robert Stroud, the famous Birdman of Alcatraz, is released from solitary confinement for the first time since 1916. Stroud gained widespread fame and attention when author Thomas Gaddis wrote a biography that trumpeted Stroud's ornithological expertise. Stroud was first sent to prison in 1909 after he killed a bartender in a brawl. He had nearly completed his sentence at Leavenworth Federal Prison in Kansas when he stabbed a guard to death in 1916. Though he claimed to have acted in self-defense, he was convicted and sentenced to hang. A handwritten plea by Stroud's mother to President Woodrow Wilson earned Stroud a commuted sentence of life in permanent solitary confinement. For the next 15 years, Stroud lived amongst the canaries that were brought to him by visitors and became an expert in birds and ornithological diseases. But after being ordered to give up his birds in 1931, 
he redirected his energies to writing about them and published his book on ornithology two years later. When the publisher failed to pay Stroud royalties because he was barred from filing suit, Stroud took out advertisements complaining about the situation. Prison officials retaliated by sending him to Alcatraz, the federal prison with the worst conditions. In 1943, Stroud's Digest of the Diseases of Birds, a 500-page text that included his own illustrations, was published to general acclaim. In spite of his success, Stroud was depressed over the isolation he felt at Alcatraz, and he attempted suicide several times. The legendary Birdman of Alcatraz died in a Missouri prison in 1963 at the age of 73. November 24. On this date in history, in the year 1971, Hijacker and criminal mastermind D.B. Cooper parachutes out of a plane. A hijacker who became known as D.B. Cooper parachutes from a Northwest Orient Airlines 727 into a raging thunderstorm over Washington State. He had $200,000 in ransom money in his possession. Cooper commandeered the aircraft shortly after takeoff, showing a flight attendant something that looked like a bomb and informing the crew that he wanted $200,000, four parachutes, and no funny stuff. The plane landed at Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, where authorities met Cooper's demands and evacuated most of the passengers. Cooper then demanded that the plane fly toward Mexico at a low altitude and ordered the remaining crew into the cockpit. At 8.13 p.m., as the plane flew over the Lewis River in southwest Washington, the plane's pressure gauge recorded Cooper's jump from the aircraft, wearing only wraparound sunglasses, a thin suit, and a raincoat. Cooper parachuted into the thunderstorm with winds in excess of 100 miles per hour and temperatures well below zero at the 10,000-foot altitude where he began his fall. The storm prevented an immediate capture and most authorities assumed he was killed during his apparently suicidal jump. No trace of Cooper was found during a massive search. In 1980, an eight-year-old boy uncovered a stack of nearly $5,880 of ransom money in the sands along the north bank of the Columbia River, five miles from Vancouver, Washington. The fate of Cooper remains a mystery. November 25. On this date in history, in the year 1990, the Lacey v. Murrow Memorial Bridge sinks to the bottom of Lake Washington. After a howling wind and rainstorm on Thanksgiving Day, Washington State's historic floating Lacey v. Murrow Memorial Bridge breaks apart and sinks to the bottom of Lake Washington between Seattle and its suburbs to the east. Because the bridge's disintegration happened relatively slowly, news crews were able to capture the whole thing on camera, broadcasting it to a rapt audience across western Washington. It looked like a big old battleship that had been hit by enemy fire and was sinking into the briny deep, said one observer. He added, it was awesome. The Murrow Bridge was the brainchild of engineer Homer Hadley, who in 1921 proposed a floating concrete highway permanent and indestructible across Lake Washington. 
figuring out a way to cross that lake between up-and-coming Seattle and its, at the time, sleepy small-town neighbors to the east, was a particular challenge because an ordinary fixed-pier bridge was out of the question. The lake was too deep, and its bottom was too mushy. Still, people scoffed at what they called Hadley's Folly. One civic organization declared that his chain of scows across Lake Washington would stand out as a municipal eyesore. But eventually, mostly because they had no other options, they came around to his way of thinking. Construction began on the bridge, named after the state highway's director and brother of famous newsman Edward R. Murrow. In 1939, it was completed 18 months later. In November 1990, the 6,600-foot-long bridge, made of 22 floating bolted-together pontoons, was in the process of being converted from a two-way road to a one-way road. A parallel bridge had been completed the year before, effectively doubling the amount of traffic that could cross the lake. The State Highway Department alleged that construction crews had left the pontoons' hatches open, leaving them vulnerable to the weekend's heavy rains and large waves. For its part, the construction company refused to accept responsibility for the disaster, countering that the probable cause of the failure was progressive bond slip at lapped splices in the bottom slab due to failure in bond. It did eventually agree to pay the state $20 million, however. For whatever reason, at midday on November 25, the center pontoons began to sink. As they disappeared under the water, they pulled more and more of the crumbling roadway down with them. By the end of the day, the bridge was gone. Fortunately, no one was injured in the accident. The Morrow Bridge was soon rebuilt. November 26. On this date in history in the year 1941, FDR establishes a modern Thanksgiving holiday. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signs a bill officially establishing the fourth Thursday in November as Thanksgiving Day. The tradition of celebrating the holiday on Thursday dates back to the early history of the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colonies, when post-harvest holidays were celebrated on the weekday regularly set aside as Lecture Day, a midweek church meeting where topical sermons were presented. A famous Thanksgiving observance occurred in the autumn of 1621, when Plymouth Governor William Bradford invited local members of the Wampanoag tribe to join the pilgrims in a festival held in gratitude for the bounty of the season. Thanksgiving became an annual custom throughout New England in the 17th century, and in 1777, the Continental Congress declared the first national American Thanksgiving following the Patriot victory at Saratoga. In 1789, President George Washington became the first president to proclaim a Thanksgiving holiday when, at the request of Congress, he proclaimed November 26, a Thursday, as a day of national thanksgiving for the U.S. Constitution. However, it was not until 1863 when President Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving to officially fall on the last Thursday of November that the modern holiday was celebrated nationally. 
With a few deviations, Lincoln's precedent was followed annually by every subsequent president until 1939. In 1939, Franklin D. Roosevelt departed from tradition by declaring November 23rd, the next to last Thursday that year, as Thanksgiving Day. Considerable controversy surrounded this deviation, and some Americans refused to honor Roosevelt's declaration. For the next two years, Roosevelt repeated the unpopular proclamation, but on November 26, 1941, he admitted his mistake and signed a bill into law officially making the fourth Thursday in November the national holiday of Thanksgiving Day. November 27. On this date in history, in the year 2005, Aerosmith and 50 Cent headline a $10 million bat mitzvah. In exchange for a multi-million dollar fee, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith and rapper 50 Cent took to the stage at New York City's famous Rainbow Room in the early morning hours of November 27, 2005, as headline performers at the $10 million bat mitzvah of Long Island, 13-year-old Elizabeth Brooks. According to the ensuing coverage of the event in the New York Daily News, guests at the Brooks bat mitzvah began their celebration unaware of what lay ahead. When a soprano sax player, who looked suspiciously like Kenny G turned out, in fact, to be Kenny G, the bizarrely star-studded event was only getting started. In the hours preceding the appearances of Aerosmith and 50 Cent, former A-list stars Don Henley, Stevie Nicks, and Tom Petty all graced the stage at the Rainbow Room, entertaining guests who had been given gift bags containing upwards of $1,000 in personal electronics, including digital cameras that 50 Cent's bodyguard reportedly tried and failed to stop guests from using to snap keepsake photos of the event. Within days, however, those photos had appeared on numerous blogs along with thousands of snarky comments. The father who spent $10 million celebrating his daughter's coming of age was defense contractor David H. Brooks, CEO of DHB Industries, a Long Island company that manufactured body armor for the United States military. Two years after the lavish event, Brooks was served with a 71-page federal indictment featuring charges of insider trading, tax evasion, and raiding his company's coffers for personal gain, including for the $10 million he used to pay for his daughter's lavish bat mitzvah. He died in prison in 2016. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for November 21 through 27. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to visit us on social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.